Good afternoon. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs, Director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I want to welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, The Future of the Republican Party, with Tim Pawlenty. Tim Pawlenty uh, is the former governor of Minnesota. He was elected in 2002, re-elected in 2006. He served as the campaign co-chairs for the presidential campaigns of both John McCain and Mitt Romney. And he himself was a candidate for the presidential nomination in 2012. Tim Pawlenty is the only Republican to win statewide in Minnesota in the last two decades. It is a great pleasure to have Tim Pawlenty back with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a delight to be with you and my alma mater at the University of Minnesota and the, and the Humphrey School. Thanks for having me, Larry. So let's just jump right in. Um, a lot's been happening in the Republican Party. Um, how do you size it up? What's the state of the Republican Party at, at this moment? Well, I think the Republican Party um, is a reflection of a market segment that is, in relative terms, lost some market share. And if the Republican Party, again, wants to be a national governing majority party, it's going to need to change. And nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And change is particularly hard for conservatives because it's not our nature. Of course, we cling to tradition. We cling to things that um, perhaps represent you know, a, a nostalgia to an extent, but society is changing, culture is changing, demographics are changing. Doesn't mean our principles change, but how we apply those principles and those philosophies to modern challenges, modern opportunities requires some thinking anew. And that's why I wrote the op-ed that I think triggered this discussion, Larry, and it really was about taking the modern Republican party, which one segment of course is still rooted in Reagan conservatism, which is all that that implies. That's probably not the majority perspective now. And a more modern iteration of, of center-right politics, which is really Trump populism. And regardless of what we all may individually think of President Trump, it's fair to say that he was a consequential president, uh, both for the nation uh, and for the party. You can leave it to your viewers to each assess you know, those consequences through their own their own lens. But now the Republican Party's challenge is you have a Reagan conservative segment of the Republican Party, you have a Trump populism or populist segment of the Republican Party, and neither can win without the other. Trumpism by itself is not a national uh, formula for, for governing or majority status. And, and without Trumpism, neither is Reagan conservatism. So I think the future of the Republican Party to, to get to what I'm describing, which is a national governing majority sustainable status, you gotta be able to fuse those two things together. And then I would add the important point, which is party also needs to modernize. And our policies, again, being true to our philosophy, need to recognize a cultural change, demographic change, societal change in issues that were outlined in that op-ed, including uh, free speech, including uh, gay rights and gay marriage, including climate change, but also including making the benefits of capitalism more available to everybody as a way to try to push back against the naive but rising call for socialism in our country, a more enlightened approach to immigration, um, and more. But anyhow, that, that led to this discussion today. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, my head is spinning uh, because what you just described doesn't sound like the Republican Party I know today. Um, a number of those issues, including the environment, um, immigration, um, the reliance on science, these are far from what the core of the Republican Party or maybe the loudest part of the party is, is declaring. In fact, folks who are making the kinds of arguments that you're putting out um, are, are, are denounced as Republican in name only. Well, that's why I think it's important to go back and remind leaders have the opportunity and the responsibility to not just take a position, but also to inform and to inspire and to motivate. And this op-ed, which was in the Star Tribune a couple months ago, started with the premise of most public policy issues are boiled down to a tension, an inherent tension between our nations and our people's great commitment to equality 
in tension with liberty and oftentimes in tension with efficiency, by the way. And to oversimplify, Democrats tend to put their thumb on the scale in favor of equality and not just equal opportunity, but increasingly equal outcomes using government as the force to do that, while Republicans put their thumb on the scale for liberty and not wanting government overreach to squash or suffocate liberties. And if you go back to those base principles and you look at these issues I'm raising with you, Larry, through that, that lens, the, the paramount principle for many conservatives is liberty. Well, let's start at that list, free speech. Um, we can have a great debate as true conservatives on the premise of liberty around how far what Republicans would describe as political correctness being overbaked should go before it infringes upon uh, liberty. So that's not moderate or that's not you know, anti-Republican to say we're going to champion liberty in that context. And I could go down the rest of the list that we just talked about, one that you mentioned you know, is climate change. We, the, root word, the root word of conservatism is conserve. And, and we want to protect those things we can without damaging our economy. Let's, let's pick those, let's spend a little bit of time on each of those. Free speech, it's in the Constitution, First Amendment. I think there's pretty wide agreement on it. Do you think the issue of free speech is uh, a challenge for uh, liberals and the left alone? Because I look at, at behavior of Republicans, um, some of the gag orders, particularly around reproductive rights, uh, some of the behavior of Donald Trump during campaign rallies where he was you know, having people tossed out of arenas. That doesn't look like free speech to me. What, what do you think? Well, I think both parties can take some blame for infringing upon free speech rights. If you dial the clock back a little bit and you go back to Tipper Gore or when the moral majority was at their peak of influence within the Republican Party, they were trying to suppress various artistic forms of expression that were viewed as offensive or pornographic, and maybe they were, but it certainly was a free speech debate about how far people should or shouldn't go with that. So the Republicans certainly uh, do not come to the discussion with totally clean hands. But more recently, as you've seen this rise of uh, political correctness, you know, we've talked in the past about college campus speakers being prohibited or limited or run off campus before they even get there. Um, you know, there is an opportunity, I think, for Republicans, as long as they don't go back to that, you know, you can have free speech as long as the, our kind of speech, to be a party, uh, at least one up the Democrats or the liberals on, on free speech and express it as, as personal liberty, a free, free expression. I've heard some of my colleagues say that some speech is so harmful. You know, like when President Trump was, you know, equating the white supremacists with those who were protesting, or when he referred to African countries in a very derogatory way, or when he's insinuated, you know, quite derogatory things about blacks and, and women, um, that this is a, a, a kind of a, a, a line that's been crossed in which pushing back against that kind of speech is a form of self-protection. It's protection against harm. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, I think about it this way. People have the right to say all kinds of stupid things. And we can't allow that to spill into incitement of terrorism, for example, or insurrection, obviously. But short of that, if you say something that I find offensive and it otherwise doesn't uh, cause me harm physically or otherwise, if it's just a matter of offense or disagreement, I think wide latitude should be given to the speaker, you know, they used to teach us in law school that your right to wave your arms around in the air ends at my face. And so it's this speech is not quite waving your arms around because there's a physical component to that. And there is a limit to how far you can or should be able to go. I, I shouldn't be able to say to you, uh, Larry, I'm going to fire you because of your race or your gender or have those motives. Um, but if it's a matter of political speech or political expression or artistic expression, I think our society should be granted wide latitude. And by the way, that kind of free speech throughout history is correlated, not hate speech, but that free speech generally is correlated to a progress and innovation, artistic advancement and cultural advancement. You'll remember, I'm sure, back to Mitch McConnell's speech after the vote to uh, on Donald Trump's second impeachment, 
it didn't reach the required number. And so the president uh, was not impeached and, and so forth. But Mitch McConnell gave this searing speech afterwards in which uh, he laid the blame on Donald Trump as practically and morally responsible for the insurrection of January 6th. And, and here's the, the relevant point. He blamed Trump for a quote unquote, growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole. Is that a form, was the president engaged in a form of free speech when he was uh, laying down these baseless claims about stolen elections and, and wild-eyed you know, theories? I don't think it's free speech, Larry, to say to 50 of my friends, let's go get some baseball bats and some gasoline and some matches and go burn down Larry Jacobs' house. And then they do that. Thank you. That's, in, that's, uh, that's incitement of violence. It could be for, depending on our motives, an incitement of domestic terror. But there are limits to free speech. And when you incite uh, violence, when you incite terrorism, when you incite illegal behavior, um, those, that crosses the line. So if, I think you're trying to probe where is the line. I think those are some of the outer edges of the line, obviously. And I think what, what incitement of insurrection of the Capitol is, is an example of that. You were uh, moving into uh, the issue of the environment and clean energy. And you know, with due respect, you were a leader of this as governor um, and helped to move Minnesota into the forefront for, for a period of time there as a green state in terms of wind energy and, and, and other strategies. Um, and then you, you seem to back off on that as you moved into the presidential race, uh, your earlier statements about cap and trade, you kind of pulled that back. What does that tell you now that you're out of politics? Give us your kind of blending of policy and politics. You know the right policy. I know you spent a lot of time with environmental scientists and environmental leaders, and then you tried to come up with a policy, and then you were, you were kind of caught in the in the winds of the Republican party. Well, that, that sort of reminds me of the old saying that a person, you know, a leader without followers is just a person taking a walk. So <laughs> you have to lead, but you also have to bring some people along. And I think it's fair to say, at least in the context of the Republican party, I was a bit ahead of my time. If you go back to 2007, we, I led the charge for signing some of the most forward leaning uh, renewable and clean energy legislation in the nation. And I, I'm not trying to be immodest, but it was written up that way by much of the then independent press. And it called for then nation leading standards in clean energy and renewable energy. And I think that was absolutely the right direction and the right call. But, but of course, my party wasn't quite there yet. And so I had to be mindful of that. Otherwise, if you're trying to lead a part of a public policy solution and speaking for a coalition and the coalition doesn't line up behind you, uh, you know, you don't have authority or passport to, to move ahead much further. So that's, that sort of was the reality of how that progressed. But, let, but look, the country, the business community, for the most part, has already embraced the notion that we are moving towards a different energy future. And coal isn't coming back. It was never coming back the repealing of certain emission standards like mercury and arsenic and others was a, was a terrible idea at the federal level during these last uh, four years. It's misleading to tell people we're going back to that. And for the Republican party, the easiest next segment of people that we can get to join the party is people that were Republicans who left. One of the issues that could help in that regard is being more of a conservationist party being more of an, an environmentally friendly party, recognizing that most of the world scientists aren't wrong. Climate change is real. We're not gonna solve it through the Green New Deal. But when you look at some of the new technologies uh, becoming available at scale, uh, these technologies can and, and already do, and certainly will uh, more so in the near future, compete very directly with traditional fossil fuel sources. So we can be for a cleaner, better, brighter energy future and not violate, you know, core principles of the conservative movement. And so walk me through the uh, set of interest groups and the party activists who bought into the drill baby drill, uh, who supported President Trump as he rolled back these very important environmental regulations. 
How do you? Yes. How do you? Well, Cole, Cole would be on top of the list. I mean, you had the president, uh, you know, seek support from not just the coal industry, but voters in states that still relied upon coal and being sensitive to their needs and an economic transition away from coal is important. But the idea that that you look in the year 2020 into the camera or into a discussion and say the solution to our country's future energy needs is coal is just not shooting it straight. It's, it, it was never going to happen and it isn't happening. And I think one of the things Republicans can do, for example, when you look at uh, how wind and solar at scale is performing in certain parts of the country, even without subsidy, you know, that's a promising development that can be done increasingly just with market forces. I'll give you just one of many examples of next generation technologies, but clean hydrogen has a potential to offer baseload capacity in ways that could be very exciting. Um, but, but the Republican Party uh, has, I think, applauded uh, domestic energy independence. That's terrific. Uh, I applauded that as well. I still do. But it's a transition to a different future. And leaders have to cast a vision for the future. We can't talk about what is or what was. Uh, if you want to get back what I call next generation or forward-leaning Republicans who drifted away or who are, who are not yet Republicans, showing them what's around the corner that's more hopeful uh, is one element of a better, more attractive, I think, broader Republican party. And as a political matter, getting back to the Tim Pawlenty who didn't want to take a walk without followers, where, where's the base for that? I mean, it, it strikes me that Republicans who would listen and, and say and think as I am, well, that sounds pretty good, um, that they would risk the backlash that you faced. Well, keep in mind, Larry, even in 2007, before this was all popular, uh, we had a good number of Republicans vote for the 2007 landmark legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them got later mad at me because the, the activists or the base got mad at them. But in, through the lens of today's terms, you know, that was a terrific, uh, I think, a terrific piece of legislation. In terms of what it means for me, when, when you got to the point then in, say, 2009 of saying, okay, now we're going to do cap and trade or now we're going to do a carbon tax, the Republican Party wasn't going to do that. So we had to look for other options. Those options are now, because of technology, much more available through private market forces than they were you know, 10 or 15 years ago. But to, to your point, I think you're driving at is what happened with the next step, which was why didn't you impose cap and trade or why didn't you impose uh, carbon tax? It's because we didn't have the support for that. And by the way, there's better ways to tackle this problem now. I wanna go back to the, you know, your argument that you've been making that, that there is this fusion that's possible between you keep the Trump people and you modernize and expand the base. And running this policy of this, I would say more enlightened, you know, progressive, uh, small p progressive approach to the environment through that lens of Tim Pawlenty, the, prag the pragmatist, does it work? Well, it, it may not work yet because um, it's sort of generational. I mean, if you look at the data around how voters feel about climate change in the environment and draw a cut line, say at age 40, uh, it, it, you can see where the next generation is headed on these issues. And I'll tell you, I'll make a prediction or even a bet with you now, I suppose we shouldn't bet here on, on this uh, Zoom conference, but in 15 years, the Republican party will acknowledge explicitly and embrace the need to address climate change or s sooner, maybe much sooner. But the problem is, this issue is being driven in large part by uh, next generation voters that the Republican Party hasn't yet felt the need to prioritize, and I, I hope they will soon. Um, I want to pick up on the, the issue of capitalism, which you mentioned. Jamie Dimon, uh, who you know, has been making the point that capitalism is at a tipping point uh, because it's not helped those who've left behind. It is not extending opportunities more broadly. Um, and so my question to you is, is this the kind of a PR campaign? Is there, to borrow a phrase, is there, is there kind of a, you know, is there something tangible to this other than nice sounding talking points? I, I think so. And I wrote in the op-ed again a couple months ago, 
there is a rising and naive call for socialism in our country. For those of us who are champions of liberty and champions of free market and champions of capitalism, the best thing we can do to preserve capitalism is to extend its benefits to more people so more people see you know, the positive attributes and rewards of capitalism. And for too many people, that's not happening. So what do we do about that? The ante for most people to be able to access in a meaningful way, the private economy is to get an education or a skill that allows them to get a job that pays well in the private sector. And as you and I've talked in the past, we now have a very significant part of our population that is undereducated or underskilled and unable to access the private economy in a meaningful way. There's a long winded answer about why that's the case, but it is the case. And so I think the Republican party uh, should take again the mantle of dramatic education reform with particular focus on disadvantaged communities and individuals who are missing the educational rung. One idea I think that would be great is to say, we're gonna have a, a super board of education innovation and we're gonna try everything. But let's say you, you could get this board to say, we're gonna try the democratic dream world, Democrat dream world, the liberal dream world on education for say a thousand or 5,000 students in a test, uh, beta test group. And we'll give the Republicans their dream framework or structure for education reform and improvement. And we'll fund it, whatever it takes, for this group and we'll see what works or allow the super board to simply try almost anything and everything. It's gotta be responsible of course and be appropriate for the children and their future. But what we're doing now is not working. We've had goals 2000, we've had nation at risk. We've had no child left behind. Every president, every governor declares some big emergency around education and with modest exceptions, uh, we have a structural intergenerational problem. It used to get wallpapered over because if you grew up in South St. Paul, where I grew up and you missed the educational rung, you could still go get what my dad called a strong back job and make a living wage for you and your family with benefits. Those jobs are mostly gone now. You either have an education or a skill or you get, you know, find yourself in a big world of hurt in a big hurry. So we have to, as a party, as a state, as a nation, recommit ourselves uh, to profound educational reform and, and doing more of the same is not working. Well, I certainly agree with you that the education that uh, our kids are getting is not up to snuff. This is particularly true among students of color. Um, and in Minnesota, we see the egregious um, um, evidence of that. Do you think a, a student can perform if they lack food, if they, in a regular basis, if they lack stable housing? Is there, is there a broader context here to what's going wrong in our education system? Absolutely. And so, you know, you imagine being a middle school teacher in a challenged neighborhood and, excuse me, I gotta shut my phone off. Um, being a teacher in a challenged neighborhood and having you know, uh, five, six, seven different languages spoken in your class. You have children in your class, many of whom uh, have moved once, twice, three times during the school year. So there's no continuity in their teaching. There's nutritional deficits. So they show up to school hungry. There's all sorts of instability issues at home. And so a child in that circumstance is in a much more difficult learning environment than the opposite. So part of education reform, I think that could be part of a compromise would be to say, all right, we have to stabilize housing. We have to recognize if they're not getting at home, but base nutritional needs. We may have to also recognize some base health needs because the reality of it is for many of our children, particularly in disadvantaged communities, they're not getting it. But then let's have on the Republican side, uh, getting some recognition for the fact that our current structure isn't personalized enough. It isn't flexible enough. There isn't enough choice. And by the way, I would also add, besides parents or proxy for parents, the number one determining factor after parents or proxy for parents, uh, how a child is going to do in school, and I don't mean you know, parents genetically, I mean parents socioeconomically, how they're gonna do in school 
is the quality and effectiveness and preparedness of their teachers. And there's a whole agenda around getting more diverse, uh, higher quality, better prepared, more competent, more effective teachers into the classroom. And by the way, Larry, I would even concede, we'll pay them more, we'll pay them a lot more, but they gotta be a lot better because right after parents, uh, in terms of how children are gonna do, is how good their teachers are or aren't. And we are allowing the teaching profession, they're great people, they don't, you know, they don't deserve criticism, they work hard in difficult circumstances, but we have to dramatically, dramatically improve the quality and preparedness and effectiveness of our teaching core in this country. You know, I think about the Republican engagement on social service issues. And I can think of a few people who have done it, but it hasn't been a top issue, certainly during Donald Trump. George Bush obviously had a big commitment to education, um, but I would say, you know, by the second term, it had gotten kind of ground down a bit um, and people had questions across the ideological spectrum about it. So when you think of actual social service reforms, is there an agenda here or are you kind of, again, you know, uh, a top of the mountain yelling for Republicans to wake up and get with it? I think there is an agenda and, and one interesting idea that's percolating and I think has some support on the right and the left is let's simplify aid to families in distress. Right now, if you think about, um, you know, if you're a mom or a dad and you've got a, a challenge situation, you might get some help with your housing. You might get some help from the government with your food. You might get some help with your transportation subsidies. You might get healthcare subsidies. Uh, you might get some social service uh, support, and there is some need for direct services, but a lot of that eventually gets to you directly or indirectly in the form of money. And there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of middlemen men and women taking chunks of that before it gets to you. So this idea of perhaps at least trying, sending money directly to people who need it, in not in addition to, but in lieu of, the block of money they get currently, and by the way, make it more generous, not less generous, so we don't have a fight about whether it's a cut or not, uh, make it clear it's not a cut, that it's an enhancement, but for those who can handle that and manage it, and again, when you've got mental health issues or other issues, that's a separate, those are separate categories, but for those who can handle it and function well with it, let's send them money and cut out the middlemen and women. Let's, let's have the government say, if you're willing to try this in, in lieu of all the, you know, transportation, healthcare, housing, nutrition, we're just going to send you a, called a family block grant or a parental block grant, that might be interesting. And it would empower parents to do with that money what they think is best for them and their children. And it might work. Uh, for folks who haven't been following this idea of a family minimum uh, income, uh, you can track uh, what Mitt Romney has been talking about. It's it's really, I think it's quite interesting and innovative. I think frankly, liberals need to actually read and think about what he's saying because Romney is, is basically following what Governor Plenty has just laid out saying, let's get rid of the convoluted administratively heavy burden on those in need to fill out the EITC, the child tax credit and the rest and just provide a minimum monthly income of let's say $350 for each kid under six. Um, now, Governor Pawlenty, Richard Nixon proposed something along these lines, um, a minimum income, um, and it took a lot of heat from conservatives. I noticed that um, Senator Rubio came out fairly soon after uh, Mitt Romney's proposal and denounced it as welfare. Well, again, um, I think Senator Rubio is fond of, and it's also a good idea, is the earned income tax credit. And he's been a champion of increasing that tax credit and allowing it to set in for people who work. And that, I think, again, that's admirable, but, but nobody is arguing that that program or other support programs um, you know, aren't a subsidy or in some cases what, what many would consider welfare. I think there's just a more efficient way to get to the end user, the help that I think you and I agree to and many others would agree to. So again, whether it's the earned income tax credit or the transit subsidy 
or the Obamacare subsidy or your rent subsidy or your SNAP food uh, subsidy or help or you know, numerous other programs that you might benefit from will bundle all that up, uh, figure out the value of it. Not, and by the way, we'll give you the saved costs that come out of the system because you got dozens of agencies putting their fingers on that, processing it and all that goes into that. And we'll even give you a little more of a bump and try it. And, and let's just see, but it, it is, is it a form of support, welfare subsidy? Of course, but so is all that other stuff. And by the way, including the refundable earned income tax credit because you're getting more back in a refund than you, you paid in taxes in some cases. Yeah, I think this is a very um, interesting and provocative idea. I do think it's a challenge to liberals. Um, and if people put aside their partisan hats, particularly on the liberal side, they would realize this is an idea that they've been talking about for a long time. Um, both well, and I think side. to be can I can say this, you can't, Larry. I mean, what it also does, though, is it very directly challenges the bureaucracy and candidly, I'm be real candid here. I'm a former politician, is a public employee unions, and so you know you'd have a lot of people threatened over um, the bureaucracy being bypassed and the future of government potentially being smaller, at least as measured by the number of people and, and agencies needed to administer all of the compliance and application and distribution of all of these programs, it could be greatly simplified, greatly streamlined, made more efficient, get more money, not less to the end user, empower people, get, you know, drive down bureaucracy. I think it's worth a try, but I do think you have enormous pushback from every public employee union in the country. We've got a series of questions here and I've been folding some of them in, but let me get to a couple here right away. Ed Sheehy uh, asks, could you please explain the difference between Republican conservatism and Trump populism? Thank you. Sure. Well, you know, I said, I guess in 2000, early 2000s, we need to be the party of Sam's Club, not just the party of the country club. And, and the Republicans, of course, I think deservedly had gotten somewhat of a reputation for being for the rich and focusing on economic initiatives and solutions that were either intended for or perceived as being for more affluent people. And we needed to be a broader party. If you think about in my analogy, Sam's Club and typical customers at Sam's Club, that's the kind of party that we needed. And Trump brought that forward. He brought it forward in part with celebrity. He brought it in part forward with his rhetoric. Uh, he brought forward a bunch of messages, I think some quite toxic, some uh, more appropriate. Um, but the whole tone and tenor of Trumpism was we are no longer uh, in favor of establishment or traditional approaches to issues. We're going to break it open in a populist way. America first, anti-China, anti-illegal uh, immigration, uh, you know, pro-freedom, pro-America, and much more. But Trumpism is not rooted uh, in, in many instances in conservatism because if, you, if it was, where was the reform of government? Where, where was the issues around taxing, not taxes, but spending and deficit and debt containment? And so there were conservative elements to Trumpism, including the tax cuts, including being pro-military and pro-security. But, but if you look at it as a size and scope of government, uh, on the economic side of it, not the Supreme Court side of it, it, you know, it wasn't conservative. There was as much spending or more than in many administrations in modern history. Another question. Um, uh, I'm a moderate Democrat, open to Republican ideas. How can the Republican Party win over college-educated voters in the middle? It's a really important question. And of course, with the Republican Party now being predominantly the Trump Party, at least for now, uh, President Trump transformed rural politics. So much of rural America is now what you consider supportive of, of Trump populism. And of course, the Democrats, as they have for a long time politically, get uh, overwhelming support from central cities and first ring suburbs. And the new development has been the Republican Party's level of support has regressed with second and third ring 
of suburban voters. Many of them are the types of voters the questioner is asking about. So I think these are the folks who appreciate elements of conservatism, maybe a little bit of Reagan conservatism, maybe selectively some of Trump stuff, but they also, I think, you know, believe in a more uh, forward-leaning view of the world and view of our economy and view of our country. And that's why these issues that I'm pegged in this op-ed, which are, we are pro-free speech. We are pro-smart strategic immigration. We're not anti-immigrant, we're just anti-illegal immigration, especially when it's out of control. We want to be for capitalism, but we want it to be empowering for people who are disadvantaged, not just a bunch of rich people. We also want to make sure that we have um, our schools and our teachers and our education systems improving, not getting worse. And then, you know, the issue of civil rights looms large, Larry. I think you know, this is the party of Lincoln, the party of Grant. Eisenhower played a role in the 50s in a pro-civil rights way. And, you know, Goldwater was somewhat of a step back from the Republicans' traditional approach to civil rights. And when Johnson, with all of his other weirdness, you know, embraced the civil rights movement in the 60s, it really began to shift politics away from Republicans as the pro-civil rights party uh, towards the Democrats. And I think that's why I raised as an example, again, these are examples, Republicans being for what the court has already condoned, which is we are not going backwards on gay rights and gay marriage. Um, and, and we can each respect that and support that without having it undermine our own uh, or our collective religious freedoms and religious liberties. So civil rights is an important issue going forward for the party, gay rights and gay marriage being one example. You mentioned civil rights, that's of course an issue. By the way, a liberty issue, if you wanna talk about first principles, directly rooted in liberty and equality. You had mentioned civil rights, a lot of concern and debate about civil rights. Um, the Democrats have proposals up with regards to voting rights. Uh, today, there's ongoing efforts in Georgia to uh, change election laws. And it's very explicitly directed at trying to, um, to dampen down uh, turnout by black voters, including shrinking the number of days of voting on Sunday um, and, uh, and other steps. Is this the right direction for the Republican Party? Should it be competing by uh, discouraging voters or it should be, as you said, an open marketplace where if you wanna vote, come on in, choose your candidate, let's do it the old fashioned way. Right, and I think trying to manipulate rules to suppress a turnout is, a, is a evidence of or, or a symptom of a party that's losing. <laughs> and so um, we don't want fraud. We cannot have systems that encourage or tolerate or, or allow fraud. But anything beyond that, that is trying to suppress or discourage otherwise uh, legally cast votes or, or votes that could be legally cast is un-American and it's undemocratic. And so I don't think my party should be on the forefront of trying to rein in uh, votes. Fraud, we should rein in. But in terms of people, the ease with which, the convenience with which, the technology with which people vote should be celebrated and applauded, not trying to, not suppressed. We have talked a lot about policies. A lot of these policies are going to cost some dollars. Um, and one of the issues that has not come up, and I'll be honest, I'm a little surprised, is about government uh, deficits and debts. When you were governor, you were, you know, this was one of your main um, agenda items was to slow the growth of spending. Uh, it grew on average 3.5% during your term, which compares to the previous 20 years when it was over 20%. So now we're coming out of Donald Trump's uh, presidency when debt went up 6.7 trillion, 33% increase. What's going on? Why? We're not hearing, we're not even hearing a conversation, a genuine, authentic conversation about the rising debt that's not just situational partisanship. Yeah. Well, I think we have enough evidence over the last number of decades to look at periods of time when either party 
one or the other party had total control of the government and what they did or didn't do relative to the debt and the deficit. And the sad reality, Larry, is, is it's pretty clear, not based on the rhetoric, but based on the outcomes and the numbers that are now validated and publicly available, that neither party seems to care much about the debt or the deficit. There will come a day in the future where people are going to care a lot about it because it's going to visit excruciatingly difficult decisions on our country. But I, I wish I could say it otherwise, but I would be misleading you in the audience if I didn't just say it this way. Neither party seems to give two you-know-whats about tackling the debt or the deficit. And again, with the pandemic, I understand we have to do extraordinary things. I get it. But you know, I'm not talking about this last 18 months. I'm talking about look at the last 25, 30 years, and our country um, doesn't seem to care. It's not a priority for them, and it's not a priority for our policymakers that we elect to do anything about it, and they're not. They're not going to do about it, anything about it until there's a crisis. You will remember uh, former state Senator Steve Kelly. He's got a question. An increase in the minimum wage would be a strong way for ensuring that the benefits of capitalism are shared. Would the modern Republican Party support a federal minimum wage that rose over time to $15 an hour? Well, it depends on the length of time. I, mean, I was a, When I was governor, I signed, I think, at least one minimum wage increase into law. And I think the minimum wage should reasonably increase over time. And uh, I'm, going, I'm not philosophically opposed to reasonable increases in the minimum wage. And for Senator Kelly's question, I think if he was talking about moving towards $15 an hour over some reasonable period of time, I think that, that would be something a good number of Republicans could support. Uh, of course, the pushback is always what do you do if you're a mom and pop business and you're barely getting by? And of course, that there's some need to recognize those concerns, but I do think that's something we could on a bipartisan basis work towards and not overnight, but over time. Um, there are a bunch of questions about kind of the how-to uh, issue. And I would say the theme of it is some level of skepticism about the receptivity of the Republican party, particularly your idea of a, a party that, that builds a coalition. Um, Pew Charitable Trust did a study and they said that with Donald Trump's influence, the Democrats and Republicans are more divided now than at any point. And they're like Hatfields and McCoys. There, there's no defecting. If you defect like Liz Cheney is discovering, uh, there will be a posse after you. What is it about the Republican Party that has produced this? Is it the fact that you've got primaries that are dominated by single issue party activists? Is that the source of it? Is the donors? And what, what is producing this, this Hatfield-McCoy situation? Well, first of all, I think the future that I'm describing is not here yet, Larry. I, the, the party, my party is not ready for what I'm describing to you. And again, I want to be clear, I am not arguing for letting go of Reagan conservatism or Trump populism. I'm, I'm calling for the elevation of leaders and candidates and discussions that fuse those two things together uh, and add a modern outlook on issues that are emerging and around the corner that anybody who pays any attention can see is coming for the next generation of voters and for the suburban voters we lost. Again, the easiest people to get another increment of growth for the Republican Party is to get back the people we just lost. <laughs> and, and some of these issues that I'm describing and others are very important to them. And so um, if you look at the, I think it was even the Pew Research study, although I may be mistaken on that, the top three issues for Republicans right now are illegal immigration, taxes, and pushing back against political correctness and the biased media. So, and, and everything else sort of falls into single digits. And, you know, those are, those are sort of Trump's cluster of issues. It, that, that's a proxy for sort of some of Trump's uh, priorities. But I think the answer to your question, I hate to say it this way, is you'll be surprised how serial losing will give the party uh, incentive to change. We're not there yet. Trump just got 74 million votes. Biden got more. Um, but in a place like Minnesota, if you lose often enough and long enough, eventually even the activists have to say, hmm, 
um, this isn't working. So, you know, you can win in little pockets in Minnesota in a legislative seat that's overly red or blue or a congressional seat. But if you want to win statewide in a place like Minnesota, running the, you know, Trump only playbook or the Reagan only playbook isn't sufficient. We have enough data to confirm that this isn't just Tim Pawlenty spouting off. We know the answer to this. <laughs> so, so it, part of your question is what, what causes this? Um, of the 435 congressional districts in the country, you know, maybe 40 of them are competitive. The rest are either all blue or all red. And the only way that somebody in one of those districts gets thrown out isn't because they're really worried about losing the general election. It's because somebody in their own party thinks they're not sufficiently liberal if you're a Democrat that they'll primary you from further from the left or you're not sufficiently conservative as a Republican that they'll challenge you further from the right. And so we now live in a country where the general election doesn't really decide how these folks behave. What decides how they behave is how their own party either accepts them or not. And the parties, by the way, are getting more and more radical. And it's not just the Republicans. Once Biden's gone, the next wave of Democrats come and, you know, <laughs> doesn't exactly look like mainstream America either. I, I don't mean look visually, I mean politically. So I'm just curious, just digging down here, do you think the electorate and voters are driven primarily by pocketbook issues? How are they doing uh, in their lives or by attitudes and kind of cultural symbols? And the reason I'm asking this is the Democrats are passing legislation that's gonna put a lot of money in the pockets of the middle class and those who have been struggling. It's gonna put money into schools to reopen them and vaccines and we're probably gonna see you know, a higher rate of job growth than had been anticipated, Republicans voted against that entirely. So let's go to those, you know, so-called Biden Republicans who were educated in the suburbs. Let's go to the working class Reagan Democrats. Are those folks gonna sign up for the Republican party given the fact the Republicans voted against this and the Democrats are clearly for it? I think there's a the danger in the single story or the single explanation. And I think the answer to your question is some of them will be disappointed in Republicans for the reasons you've just articulated. But it's also true that we have a uh, lot of other things going on in our politics. There's an element of celebrity. There's an element of entertainment. There's an element of motivation. There's a lot of tension around changing culture, political culture and demographics that are colliding with each other. And again, the premise for that op-ed was uh, in the popular vote, Republicans are losing and lost almost every election in, in modern history nationally. And the demographics and political culture that cha are changing in such a way that it's going to get worse and not better. And so, yes, your question about people who are worried and anxious economically are going to find things like the COVID relief package helpful and attractive, and they're not gonna like the fact that Republicans voted against it if you're in that category, um, but it goes way beyond that in terms of the brand of the Republican party. By the way, I mean, you think about these suburban voters as one example, I mean, they don't want somebody who, you know, they think is anti-gay, uh, anti-environment, um, you know, doesn't care about distributing benefits of capitalism to disadvantaged or needy people. Uh, they care a lot about our security and safety. They would like to see somebody have a, a reasonable approach to legal immigration and not demonize all immigrants as the country continues to be more diverse um, and people are more experienced with immigration. You know, there's a, there's a great, I think, common point that the country could agree on, which is if you do immigration right, and it's strategic and it's smart and we're bringing brain power and needed uh, workers to our country within a reasonable number and it's orderly and it, it meets the strategic and economic needs of our country. I think a lot of people could get behind that, including Republicans, but this idea that we're gonna have runaway illegal immigration is what's setting off a lot of people emotionally and politically and it's not irrational. I mean, when they see you know, the volume of illegal immigration, that's, it's not irrational to say that's worrisome. Question here about the um, 
the reports from the FBI and from uh, Homeland Security about the threat of white supremacists. Uh, the FBI uh, has identified the rise of white supremacist groups as the number one national security threat. Do you think the Republican Party takes that sufficiently to heart? I hope so. I hope so. These, these groups do exist um, and they are potentially dangerous. And our country still struggles uh, with you know, the legacy of racism. I, do, I don't think our country is on the face of our laws, you know, systemically racist in most instances uh, or, or any instance, but we do have racism in the country. We have people who have biased or, or racist views. We're 150 or so years removed from slavery. That's just two generations. The idea that that you know, doesn't still have an impact in our society that needs to be addressed is not right. It's, we, we need to come to terms with the racial divide in this country and groups that are, you know, have an agenda of racial supremacy are extremely uh, corrosive to, to making progress in that regard. And of course, to the extent they're prone to violence, that's just unacceptable. And, and the Republican Party needs to acknowledge that and say that. You're still in the Republican Party, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, They'll have me. <laughs> um, as you know, from the work you've done um, with financial institutions, there has been a large gap between the wealth and assets of the black community and the white community. It's over tenfold. Um, and when black businesses and entrepreneurs have applied for loans and have the similar portfolio and uh, in terms of their business and their personal assets, um, they're declined more often than the white businesses. And this is according to the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank. Is this an area where America needs to do a better job in terms of leveling the playing field so that um, black entrepreneurs can build the businesses that hire in, in communities of color? Absolutely, Larry. I mean, you're describing a form of business redlining, redlining the term for used in the mortgage industry for in the past companies not writing as many or any mortgages in certain neighborhoods that they would consider to be more of a risk or a challenge. You're describing it in a business or entrepreneurial context. And I, I would say, I would go even one step further, which is not only should we not we should make sure that we have no discrimination in that regard. But I think in given the historical disadvantages that I've just described, we should have affirmative lending efforts into disadvantaged communities with the goal of, of business, commercial, and entrepreneurial opportunities being advanced. Uh, you know, that, that is a really important part of what I said earlier about capitalism being extended, the benefits of capitalism being extended. Um. Let's talk about uh, 2022, it's coming up. Um, Republicans are giddy about the prospects um, because the track record is that the president's party usually takes it on the chin and the House, is, uh, House of Representatives, the margin is very small. In the Senate, the Democrats have about as close a margin as, it is the closest margin imaginable. It's 50-50 with the vice president as the tie-breaking vote. What does the Republican Party need to do to capitalize on that, assuming that the economy is going to be taking off, that jobs will be growing at an accelerated rate, that American voters are going to have cash in their pockets from the COVID relief package? I think the Republican Party will you know, ride the wave of what's taking place in the interim elections and a lot of that will be macro forces beyond their control. And there's enough what I'd call Trump or traditional Reagan voters still around uh, to maybe carry the day temporarily one more time or two more times. But again, these, these changes that I've described at the onset are going to affect my party in the intermediate and longer term. So I think if the economy is booming and there are not any huge unforced errors from the Biden administration, which is a big if. Uh, then it comes down to these individual states that, that are up in the Senate and in the House. And again, 
with redistricting, all of those boundaries in the house are gonna change. So for you or I to sit here today, pre-redistricting to say, we know what the house is gonna look like, um, you know, that's probably premature. But I think there's a lot of people who study it, who say the demographic shifts, um, you know, will not necessarily favor Republicans in the redistricting, but that the off-year election environment might or could. And then in the Senate, it all depends on uh, the quality of the candidates and also the macro forces. Rob Portman's retiring in Ohio. That's a Republican incumbent seat that will now be a swing seat, although Ohio is trending Republican somewhat. Um, you know, uh, the Missouri Senator uh, just announced he's not going to run again. So there's another open Republican incumbent seat in Missouri and a somewhat of a swing state and, and the list goes on and on. So I don't know what's gonna happen in 2022 and it, that's a long ways away still in politics. So I just wanted to mention for folks who haven't followed the demographic shift that Governor Plenty has been referring to. Quick way to look at this, presidential elections, the white proportion of the electorate when Ronald Reagan won a landslide in 1980 was about 90%. This year it was around two thirds. Um, and so there is this profound change. If you look in Georgia um, at the now Senator Warnock, uh, he won with 29% of the white vote. So yeah. there is this very dramatic uh, change in the electorate. It's not uniform. We saw uh, particularly Hispanic men voting for Republicans in Texas and in Florida in decisive races and, and probably were the reason for the, the upsets there. And, and, and again, it does vary from state to state and even a little bit regionally, but as a broad statement, I think it's fair to say if you're way behind with women voters, you're way behind with young voters, you're way behind with diverse voters and they're a growing segment of the voting population in relative terms. Um, and you're not doing well with modest income voters. That is not a formula for being a national majority governing party, but that's the situation my party finds itself in. And so, yes, can they eke out some victories maybe in two or four years, perhaps if the overall macro environment's right, but those demographics that I've just described to you that you touched on are accelerating. And the under 40 view of the Republican party and conservatives is really toxic or at least highly negative. And if the Republican party doesn't come to terms with that, its future is bleak in that regard. You have talked uh, today on a number of uh, areas about the facts, the reality, education, energy, but unfortunately, the news environment, our information environment that we get from both um, uh, streaming, social media is filled with misinformation. Do you have thoughts about how we, we kind of increase the prominence of facts and, and neutralize or at least degrade the misinformation that is confusing so many Americans? I wish I had an easy answer for that, Larry. And it's pretty clear that many of our fellow Americans can be persuaded of almost anything uh, if they get enough of, of a repeated message funneled to them and without regard to the credibility or accuracy of the source. <laughs> and, uh, and the ability for any of us to go to a place that is relatively unbiased um, and is based on facts is, is kind of limited. And I, I struggle with having a good answer for your question. And I think for me, the answer has been to not be a consumer of a limited number of channels. And I don't mean channels, TV channels, I mean information flow, that the only way to get any sort of balance or check and balance is to bounce around to different sources so you can get take from different sources, but not everybody has that kind of time. And you know, if you look at who reads what, it's kind of discouraging with regard to the, your question. And, and um, I will say, you know, politics and campaigns are a lagging indicator of our culture. And all they are is our culture responding through the platform, the marketplace of an election, picking who they want as a reflection of what they believe, what they hope for, for our country and the like. And, you know, setting Trump aside, you know, the, the wisdom of crowds on average over time sort of sorts this out. 
you know, the pendulum may swing to one extreme or the other for a little while, but the history of our country sorting, sorting it out over time is pretty good. Governor Tim Pawlenty, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I am eager to, um, you know, have conversations with Republicans, conservatives, liberals, Democrats, to figure out where we are in America. So thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.